morning, Northbrook. I am okay to serve, not worried. Life is swirling. And uh, Scott's words pierced into that swirl. And that's a good thing. Um, and it actually relates to what I have to share with you this morning in, in Hebrews 1, 11, verses 1 and 2. We're going to read this morning together. I'll read out loud. I'm going to read beginning in uh, verse 36 of chapter 10. And then I'll read down through verse 2 of chapter 11. I want to make sure that we understand that chapter 11 is a man-made construct. It's not original. It was not in any of the manuscripts. There are no chapter headings. This is a sermon at at probably, um, this is something that was written for us and it has a flow of thought. And honestly, I hate that chapter 11 is there as far as the heading because it disrupts the whole thing and we lose the train of thought that he's trying to communicate. So we'll begin back in chapter, in verse 36 and read down through verse two of chapter 11. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while and the coming one will come and he will not delay. We could read this, but in the meantime, my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Here in front of us in chapter 11, we have one of the most well-known verses in the Bible at the beginning of one of the most well-known chapters of the Bible, giving us one of the most concise definitions of faith. Unfortunately, as I kind of said a moment ago, because of our chapter headings that we have, which make it convenient for us to locate things in the Bible, so to that extent I see their functionality, But because chapter 11 exists at the top of this and chapter 12 follows this, we have lifted it out of its context and called it the Hall of Faith. And and we, like going to the Football Hall of Fame, look at the bronze busts of the different characters of the Bible and walk away and go, wow, they were amazing guys. We hold them up there with, if you're old enough, Johnny Unitas and Lombardi and all of those guys coming up to the present of Peyton Manning, who won the last Super Bowl for the Denver Broncos, just putting that in there for you Broncos fans. Uh, But we've got these people, and we walk away with that attitude of, what amazing people. I want to be like Abraham. I want to be like whoever is listed there. And that idea couldn't be further from the truth of what, the writer of Hebrews is trying to communicate to us here in chapter 11. 
He wants us to walk away and say, what an amazing God. That these failures, most of them, by today's standards, were able to endure the circumstances of their life in faithfulness to God. This is not a hall of faith or a hall of fame about people. This is a proclamation of the kind of life that can be lived when someone chooses to pursue God. That's the idea here. But at the beginning of this section, as he continues the thought from before, he has talked to us about endurance. And he has linked it to faith. And so he begins here with a informational chat, so to speak, to answer the question, what is faith? You will only endure if you have faith. So what is faith? And he gives us this definition of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction, or the word means evidence or proof of things not seen. And we're done. There you go. You have it. We can quit now. You all know what that means, don't you? Faith is itself the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is itself the proof of all the things that are not seen. And for most of us, that definition leaves us hanging a little bit. Because we think in terms of books like Evidence That Demands a Verdict to prove what we believe. And there's a whole host of them. Paul, uh, James Kennedy, Why I Believe. And Josh McDowell's books on, I think are called Reason to Believe. And we pull out those books and we say, here's the evidence. Here, this proves that the Bible's true. And the writer of Hebrews is saying the opposite. The evidence that these things are true is faith. The proof that these things are true is faith. And that rubs us the wrong way because it seems like circular reasoning. But for some reason, the writer of Hebrews wasn't bothered by that. And the Holy Spirit who inspired him and directed him to write these things wasn't bothered by that. Faith itself is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith itself is the evidence or proof of things not seen. While we may not fully grasp all of this, I would interject this right now. You want to know that this is true? Look at faith in these people's lives in chapter 11. That's the point of chapter 11. Look at what faith produced in these people's lives. And you will see the evidence of the things that can't be seen in the faith that was present in these people's lives. But we may not understand all that there is about faith and 
and I'm not going to, in one Sunday, be able to cover fully the topic of faith. But these words are crucial to our ability to faithfully complete the spiritual journey that God has for us. To the extent that what he wants us to understand is without faith, you will not endure. You cannot endure through the spiritual journey that your Father in heaven has for you if you don't understand this idea of faith and it's not present in you. You remember that word endure? That that's not the norm or the standard fare of topics for preaching in our culture today. Endure implies hard things. Endure implies weariness. Endure implies pain. Endure implies hard. And the writer of Hebrews has said in chapter 10, you have need of endurance. Writing to these people who are suffering persecution for their faith, let alone all the other ramifications in their life and just life, says if you're going to make it, you have need to endure. And he, he has laid out for us in chapter 10 two realities. Two choices. One choice is to endure and, and to see the one who is coming and to receive the rewards that have been promised and to be with God for eternity. And the other choice is scary and awful. It's horrible. You don't endure. You walk away from it all. And the only God that you will ever know is one of whom you should be terrified. One whose fury you will experience. And an eternity of separation from that God and fire. That is all you'll ever know. Those are the options. You quit. You walk away from Faith, you walk away from the truth and you end in fire. You endure, which is not that comfy little word you want to wrap yourself up in. You endure and you'll see God in His splendor and His majesty and who with loving voice and tender eyes will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your salvation. Welcome home. That's the choice. So while endure may not be the typical word used on Sunday mornings, okay guys, we're done. Go out and endure this week. That's a real, that sounds like a real hopeful message, isn't it? It is a hopeful message, actually because of why we can endure. But he wants us to understand that this is a hard, painful, spiritual journey 
in, as we pursue faithfulness to the Father. He's not promising a path lined with roses and temporal pleasures, but one that will test us to the core. One that will threaten to unravel everything upon which we've placed our hope. And he warns us not to throw away our confidence. And then he links that idea to this word, this concept, this way of life called faith. Quoting from various Old Testament passages here in verses 37 and 38, he reminds us that Jesus is coming back very soon. Twice he uses references to very soon in verse 37. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not delay. In a little while and without delay, he's coming. He wants God's people, the righteous ones, the ones who are people who live by faith and do not shrink back to not quit. What's interesting here, and I don't have time to develop it and show it to you, but he quotes from Habakkuk. And when this passage is used in Habakkuk and, and Paul quotes it in Romans, it's used in a very different way. In Habakkuk, it's used to refer to, to you find life. As a righteous one, you find life. The righteous one will come alive by faith. But here, the writer of Hebrews does what he does in so many other places, and he takes a verse and applies it in a very different way than how it was originally written. I don't get to do that, he does. I'm not going to argue that the Holy Spirit led him to take the verse in a different way. But the way that the writer of Hebrews takes that verse from Habakkuk is instead of, you will find life or you will come to life as a righteous one. He changes it to, you will live a life. It is a way of life that you live as a righteous one. And that way of life that you live is by faith. God's people possess faith. They endure by faith and they preserve their souls. And, and so this statement that he makes here, those things of enduring by faith, possessing faith and preserving their souls seems to be a pretty important concept. Would you agree with that? Is it important for us to know how to preserve our souls? And it doesn't say but of those who have faith and God preserves their souls. It's an active thing on our part to preserve our souls, to come to final glorification, to come to being able to say like Paul, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith to the end. I am being poured out like a drink offering. As he writes that, he is very near his death. I'm being poured out like a drink offering and there's, it's, it's a sacrifice to God. It's a worship of God and there's very little left. But I want you to know that through this journey and you read Paul's journey and it's hard. Through this journey, I have endured 
I have kept the faith, and you could even add, I have preserved my soul. It is an active pursuit and an active battle to come to a right end with God. It's an important concept of enduring by faith is an important concept to anyone who desires to live in obedience to their Father in heaven. So in a sense, that's what it means to endure. But do we really have a good understanding of what faith is? If we can understand endure, and we know what that entails and what it implies, we are to endure, then we are to endure by faith. My righteous one will live by faith. We're going to endure by faith. What does it mean when we use the word faith? And that's the point of chapter 11. I talked to you about endurance. You're going to endure by faith. Do you know what faith is? It's kind of how he starts chapter 11. Do you really know what faith is? Well, let me tell you. He gives us that definition, the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence or proof of things not seen. And then he's going to give us real life examples of what it looks like to endure by faith. And so what I want for us to do today and next week, today I want us to deal with that first big question then, what is faith? And then next week I would like for us to look at what is the source of faith? I want us to understand what faith is in a biblical framework. And then I want us to understand where faith comes from. And I'll preempt that a little bit by saying it's not like Tinkerbell on Peter Pan where Tinkerbell is fading away and you've got to believe everybody with me now I believe, I believe, I believe I believe, I believe, I believe and we get an emotional workup and something happens and I have faith that's not how it happens but a lot of people have the idea that is where faith comes from but it's not the source of faith But first, we need to talk about what is faith. And I want to, before we jump totally into that question, I I want us to think about the idea of strong faith versus weak faith. And I want to say, along with not only enduring to the end and hearing, well done, along with that, I want us to think about those who are in the faith, those who have faith, and those who also then have what we call weak faith. I just want to touch on this for a second before we go any further. Weak faith. I would say this, that we can't fully enjoy the Christian life and live the Christian life unless we become people of strong faith. We can't fully enjoy the Christian life and live the Christian life the way it's meant to be unless we are people of strong faith. You say, where do you get that from? Well, I base it partly on the realities presented in chapter 10 here, that we cannot endure the strong threats spiritually against ourselves if we are people of weak faith. 
But I would also take your mind to Romans 14. And if you're not familiar with Romans 14, it's, it's a, a very misunderstood passage, I guess is a nice way to put it. But, but Romans 14 speaks of the weak person and the strong person. And what's, what's missed there is that the weak person in Romans 14 is described as a person who has weak faith and that weak faith is evidenced in a belief that the person will lose God's favor if he or she engages in certain behaviors prohibited in the Old Covenant laws. The weak Christian in Romans 14 is the one who has a whole bunch of rules and if they break one of those rules, God's going to be unhappy with them. They're going to lose some level of relationship with God. The strong person in Romans 14 is the one who has strong faith and knows that the relationship is based upon what Christ has done and not upon what they do. But how does the strong person live with the weak person? How does the person of strong faith live with the person of weak faith? Paul goes so far in Romans 14 as he gets into Romans 15, he tells the stronger brother, the brother who has stronger faith, as he puts it there, he says, bear with the infirmities of the weak. What he's saying is, these people are spiritually sick because they believe that if they don't keep these rules from the old covenant, they lose favor with God. They lose blessing of God. That's going to cause some conflicts. Bear with them. Love them. Live with them. But he links, the point that I want to make from that is he links the weaker faith with the weaker brother. One of the things that they worry about is the Sabbath. And Paul says, we know that one day is not more, any more important than another day. But the weaker believe, brother believes if he doesn't keep the Sabbath, he loses God's favor. Weak faith puts us in a place where we don't relate to God in the way that we could or should relate to God. We don't enjoy the fullness of the relationship with God on our part because we don't understand who God is. How does that get corrected? Most people try to correct that by arguing with the weaker brother and changing their mind. Most people try to correct that by educating themselves. But weak faith there results in a problem in my view of God and my relationship to him. James 5 talks about those who are sick. It's another passage. And it's famous that if you're sick, what should you do? Everybody knows this. If you're sick, what should you do? Call for the elders. They come with oil. I don't know if that's polyunsaturated or saturated oil. I'm not sure. Or there comes from canola or sunflowers or safflower. But they come with their oil and they, they anoint the person with oil, which it appears that means you put it right on their forehead here because that's what you're told to do as an elder. And then you pray over them. And the prayer of a righteous man avails much. 
So we know that what we can do if we are a person who is righteous is we can heal everybody. Because that's what it says. But it might not be what it says. I would encourage you, if you can get a hold of a copy of John MacArthur's commentary on James, and look at the chapter that deals with that passage, he makes a fantastic argument that fits the context of James 5. And his argument is that the sickness there is not physical. The sickness there is spiritual. And the person who has an infirmity in the King James is a person who has weak faith. And that person is struggling spiritually because of weak faith. And if you're struggling spiritually because you, and I, by the way, I agree with MacArthur. I, I, I don't think it was his original idea because I found a paper that was written before his commentary was by somebody else. And it's word for word the same as it is in his commentary. So it wasn't his idea, but it's a good idea. He has more credibility because it's got MacArthur's name with it. But the idea is, if you're struggling in your faith, you know what you need to do? You need to call for the elders of the church. And they need to come and pray with you. And they need to come and encourage you. And they need to walk with you through this. And the prayer of a righteous man will avail much in that person's life. But you know what we do? We call when someone's sick, when we're sick physically. Then we want elders with us. But when we're struggling spiritually, you know what we do? We withdraw and we isolate and we distance. In the time when we need strong faith in our lives, we we back off and we figure we're going to get through this on our own. But James says, "You're you're in a sick state spiritually and you need your faith strengthened. I spent more time on that than I wanted to. But the point I want to make is that weak faith equals basically a way of life spiritually that is not what God intended for us. It affects how we view Him. It affects how we view our life. It affects how we live our lives. And so we need to be people of strong faith. So that makes this idea of what is faith, I think, even more important to us. If we're going to be the kind of people that we should be as God's children, we need to be people of strong faith. I'll add this too as a caveat. The reality is our faith ebbs and flows. And that is what Hebrews 11 is going to show us. Abraham, A man of faith had faith that ebbed and flowed. We're going to see that. Sarah had faith that ebbed and flowed. But the ideal is to live a life of strong faith as we walk with God. So what is faith? So I thought about this. I thought, you know, there's a lot of ways that people understand that word today. I... I was thinking through some common perceptions of faith today. 
there's a, there's a term or phrase used about people of faith. You've probably heard that. They're people of faith. You'll hear that used in the news about groups or organizations, basically faith-based organizations. And in this case, faith equals a religious or spiritual affiliation or adherence to a belief system. They're not using the word faith like Hebrews uses the word faith. It's a different idea. People of faith today could be religious observers who are unsaved, who actually are not people of faith, but they adhere to a religious system. We also use the term to refer to one's faith in systems, politicians, or other groups or individuals. I don't know that there has been a time in my life where our world is evidencing faith in people and systems like the 60 years I've been alive. I've never seen anything like this. Somebody says something and I believe it because that person said it. And this other person says something and I will not believe it because that person said it. And forget the facts that might exist and really thinking through and working through, people are placing their faith in all kinds of things and people. But that idea of faith is not what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. That kind of faith is really synonymous with trust. And I'll say this now and we'll come back to it later. Faith is not the same as trust. When we say, I placed my faith in Jesus, according to biblical understanding of faith, that does not mean trust. It means something else. But that's the way a lot of people understand it today. It's the idea of a present trust based upon past experience. I know this thing or this person, I place my trust in them and I call that faith. That's not biblical view. And some religious adherents, another way it's used, it seems to refer, they seem to refer to faith as some inner power. It's an inner power that can be accumulated and used to exert influence upon events, people's problems, or even God himself. I just need to get more of this, and when I've got enough of it, it's like some kind of a game. When I've accumulated enough gold coins, then I can shift my gold coins over here and get a booster. And I get that booster, and then I can fly, or I can jump, or I can, I can do all these crazy weird feats because I accumulated enough of this. And if I'm not any good at that game, then I pay money to buy those gold coins so that I can do these amazing things over here. That, that really is a way that people view faith. I read my Bible, I pray, I go to church, I check these boxes, I do these things, I know that that's what God wants, and I accumulate my gold coins of faith, and when life gets really hard, I cash them in, and I get booster power. That sound familiar as to how people think? Usually it is expressed as, if you have enough faith, you will be healed. If you really have faith, hold on to faith, have enough faith, and you'll get this job that you want. 
or you'll get this car that you want. Anybody heard it used that way? It's pretty prevalent. I, I was at a funeral a long time ago and a pastor was there and this person had died and um, they were beloved by the church, they were beloved by this pastor and he stood up and said, this person didn't die because we didn't have enough faith. We believed. And I was just like, no, this person died because that was God's will for their life and they came to their appointed day. But, but it, was, it was, he didn't go on to say that. He just left it as, we believed enough, we had enough faith. Happened anyway. And I, I just kind of went away going, I'm not exactly sure what he was trying to communicate there, but I don't think it was really biblical. And people say strange things at funerals, so I kind of gave him some benefit of the doubt. But it reflected that, I think, it reflected that idea of if we have enough faith, God will actually do something based on the amount of faith that we have. And we can exert some influence out there. I don't think any of those biblically reflect uh, what, what we're to hear here in Le- Hebrews 11. I saw a bumper sticker, yes, I saw two bumper stickers yesterday about faith on the same road. So I thought maybe God's trying to tell me something, but I didn't write it down, all both of them. But the one I remember was faith through it. That was the bumper sticker, faith through it. And I've been thinking about it since I saw it. I discussed it with Terry, trying to figure out what that meant. And it could mean a number of things and and possibly even something good, but I have no idea what faith through it means when it's all said and through it. Push through it? Uh, Don't push through it, faith through it. Okay, I'm not gonna push through it, I'm gonna faith through it. How do I faith through something? But they make for good bumper stickers and I can't even explain that one for sure. But come back to Hebrews 11. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction, evidence, or proof of things not seen. According to this definition, I would argue that the biblical idea of faith is something radically different. Faith, like as I said earlier, faith itself is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith itself. Faith itself is the evidence of what is unseen. It is not strengthened then by any external evidence or assurance. I have a few definitions that I want to read for you by smart people that I think you know most of them. Remember Webster's Dictionary? He's a really nice guy. Really nice guy. And of course, if you're a homeschooler, you know that Noah Webster was a Christian, and therefore that makes this dictionary so much better. So I quoted from Webster's Dictionary. This is what Webster says. Faith is the complete acceptance of a truth which cannot be demonstrated or proved by the process of logical thought. Webster said that. Faith is the complete acceptance of a truth which cannot be demonstrated or proved by the process of logical thought. I said, if I can't reason through it, I'm not going to believe it. Okay, explain to me a virgin birth. Well, artificial insemination, no, that's not the same thing. No male seed, 
and you got a baby with male chromosomes. You can try all day long to explain that to me logically. You can't. Except to say, well, that's what God did. Uh-huh. And that's what Webster was saying. It's a truth that you accept. And the only way you're going to accept it is by faith. And for next week, I've got a whole laundry list of things that you say you believe that have no logical explanation. Martin Luther said in his commentary on Romans, faith is living in certainty of God's favor such that it would risk death a thousand times trusting in it. Faith is, in other words, faith is a way of life that would sacrifice everything to please God. John Piper in his book, Future Grace. Faith is the act of our soul that turns away from our own insufficiency to the free and all-sufficient resources of God. Faith focuses on the freedom of God to dispense grace to the unworthy. It banks on the bounty of God. Now you're probably sitting there going, I have no idea what he just said. Well, if I got my arms up here like this and I had enough hair to make it go like this and I talked like him, you'd go, wow, that was amazing. But uh, the idea there is faith is something in our souls that causes us to depend completely upon God and his grace. John MacArthur says, Faith is not a wistful longing that something may come to pass in an uncertain tomorrow. True faith is an absolute certainty, often of things that the world considers unreal and impossible. A complete, absolute uncertainty, especially of things that the world considers unreal and impossible. Christian hope is belief in God against the world, not belief in the improbable against chance. Those are all definitions or explanations that I think could stand a lot of thinking through uh, on our part. And they're helpful towards understanding faith. But I want to clarify one important distinction regarding faith, and that's this. Faith in God is not the same as trust in God. Faith in God is not the same as trust in God. That's a popular misconception, but it's not true. Do you know what the, I don't ask you to know what, if you know what the Greek word is, but do you know what the meaning of the Greek word is that's translated faith? Anybody want to climb out on that limb before I cut it off and you fall mercilessly to your embarrassment to the ground? It means belief. Belief. Faith is translated from a word that means to believe. And while it may seem a minor issue and straining at definitions... I think that if we misunderstand the basic meaning of the word, it can lead us to problematic confusions and conclusions about faith and our relationship to God. Faith 
is synonymous with belief. Faith is not synonymous with trust. Faith is synonymous with belief. To have faith in God, understanding that the word means to believe, to have faith in God is to believe that all he has said about himself, all he has said about our world, all he has said about us, and all that he has said about his interaction with humans is true because he, believed, because he said it. To have faith means that I approach this book that we call the Bible with a starting assumption that everything in it is true. Unless it's clear that it's metaphorical or, or just a illustrative language. But I approach this from the very beginning to the very end that it's true. That I approach it from the very beginning to the very end that it's God's word. And that I approach it from the very beginning to the very end as it is in some way authoritative to my life. And that that belief is not based upon experience or logical reasoning, but instead is anchored in God's word. It doesn't become true to me in places as a popular way of looking at it today, that inspiration is God's work to cause me to believe a part of it, but he may not do the same thing for you. It may be true for me, but it may not be true for you. Which has led to a popular phrase of, well, this is what it means to me. A lot of Bible studies revolve around, what does this mean to you? And as I've said for years, God doesn't care what it means to you. He wants you to understand what he said and what he meant. And that forms the basis of what it means to you. It starts with, God said it, and it's true. And I believe it, because God said it. But, you know, there's stuff in here that's just not logically, man... You know, I, I believe that God made everything, but you want me to believe that God took dirt and mounded it up and then blew on the dirt and the dirt became this? Yes. Yes. Why? But that doesn't even make any sense. I can show you all kinds of things that argue against it, and I can show you all kinds that argue for it. But the reality is, I don't believe it because I can show you things that argue for it. I believe it because it's what God said. I have faith in it. I have faith in who God is. I have faith that everything I see is not part of the matrix. But everything I see is held together every moment in the mind of Jesus.
and it's real. And he lovingly and sovereignly oversees his creation. So where does trust come into play? I believe that God says, be still and know that I am God. And I say, because of the Holy Spirit's work in me, I say, I believe that to be true. And therefore, I need to be still. I need to choose to be still and focus on this God and know that he is sovereign and know that he is in control and stop trying to control every little aspect of my life so it goes the way I want it to go. Belief leads to an action, which is trust. I believe it to be true that Jesus died on a cross and rose from the dead to pay the penalty for my sin and give me everlasting life and acceptance with the Father. I believe that to be true and I place my faith in him. I place my trust in him. But my, and the way I said that actually confuses the issue, so let me re-say that. I place my belief in him and I trust him to be true because it's what he said. See, even I struggle with what I've known for a long time, and it comes out. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. I believe I have acceptance with the Father, and so I approach the Father confidently, trusting what I believe to be true, because the Holy Spirit has caused me to believe that to be true. And it comes into play when one acts upon one's faith, one's belief, and we call that to live by faith. People of faith live faithfully. People who believe act in a way upon that belief. They place their trust because they believe, and they live faithfully for God. A life of faith is a willingness to be obedient to the clear commands of God's word. And faith, what we believe, will never be in conflict with what the Bible teaches if that belief is based upon what the Bible says. If I accept this to be true, and I accept this to be authoritative, and I believe that it is, what I believe will never be in conflict with who God has said he is and how he wants me to live. And so this is where this all comes down to being important in our lives in the level of faith. I can't expect to be a person of faith. I can't expect to be a person of strong faith if I am not a person who spends intentional quality time in God's word. It can't happen. Belief begins right here in what God has said. And I can't at all expect that I'm going to live a life of faithfulness if I don't have my belief rooted in this here. 
And, and let me share something that I think is scary, okay? Um, and, and please don't take this in any way of saying I'm better than you. But my job is to be in this book, right? That the elders can give themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. That's my job description according to the Bible. So I spend hours and hours and hours studying this and learning about it and reading about it every week of my life. And folks, my beliefs were shaken to their core to the point that I almost walked away from some of the things that were most important to me. God allowed my life, it was his purpose to touch my life in places that I thought were the most secure places of my life, my understanding of suffering. And God stuck his finger in there and stirred it a little bit. And, and I started to unravel and fall apart. To the point where, as I've told you, I didn't want to hear about God anymore. And to the point where I was technically an agnostic and on the verge of becoming an atheist. And with, uh, the reason I share that with you is because it's scary to me that as a person who spends their life in this book seeking to understand what it says and who God is to be grounded in belief, it scares me how fragile I am spiritually. And it scares me even more for people who the only time this book gets opened is on Sunday. That's what scares me. We cannot endure without faith. You cannot make right decisions in your life without faith. You cannot live the way your father wants you to live in the Christian life. You cannot be successful in the Christian life, if we want to use that word success, without faith. If our belief is flawed, our view of God is flawed, our view of life is flawed. And it's one thing if we misinterpret, it's another thing if we don't even care. I don't like to yell at you. I don't like to hammer on you. I want to encourage you. So let me encourage you in the understanding of how awful the attacks of Satan are against his children. I want to encourage you to understand how much you need to be in God's word. Not just having a verse for the day, but knowing who God is and how he works and how, how life unfolds in his control. What I learned through that process is how weak I am and how much I need God. How much I have to learn about God and how much I have to learn about me. Did my faith grow? Yeah. 
But I have a very different view of myself spiritually than I did then. I'm not the person I thought I was. We know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's salvation. Don't we? How can a person be saved? Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. I believe the gospel message and I place my trust in what God has promised in the gospel. And we read the story of Abraham and it says that Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. But Hebrews 10 tells us that the righteous will live by faith, will live by belief and will not shrink back but will preserve their souls. I was this close to having shrunk back and not preserving my soul. And there became a fight for belief. When I reached the point of where else can I go? When I reached the point of there are no other answers and therefore seriously, I will end my life because there's no other reason to live because this this is not true. Where else am I going to go? Or fight and preserve my soul. And by God's grace, I fought. The righteous will live by belief. And chapter 11 gives us multiple examples of those who by belief in God, his person and his promises, acted in obedience to God. It proves to us, chapter 11 is there to prove to us that the Christian life is not based upon human approaches, but on a way that runs counter And a way of thinking that runs counter to all the cultures and philosophies of man. I've read Socrates, for those of you who want to be philosophers and want to throw out something Socrates said. I read it. It's boring. Plato wrote it. It's boring. I've read Aristotle. I've read uh, the Epicurean writings. I've read the Stoic writings. It's boring stuff, and it's a bunch of confused people trying to figure out life. And it runs counter most of the time to what God says in his word. And the times that it agrees with God's word, I say all truth is God's truth. But our culture today is screaming for things that are counter to what's in the Bible because our culture today has given up on what God has said. They have belief in false things. And the writer of Hebrews calls his Greek and Jewish audience steeped in Hellenistic and Jewish philosophies to come back to a belief in who God is, just like these people had done, just like Abraham, who against all rhyme and reason of his time, by faith went to live in the land of promise, in a foreign land, 
living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. He walked away from his wealth. He walked away from his culture. He walked away from most of his family and went because God said, this is what I want you to do. He believed the promise that God gave him that a child would be born to him even when he got to be over 90 years of of age against all rhyme and reason. He continued to believe that what God had said was true and he would keep his promises and lived in accordance with that. So next week, we'll consider the source of faith. How does belief in God begin? And are there means through which faith can be strengthened? Yes. Or else the writer of Hebrews wouldn't tell us to preserve our souls. But for today, I I simply want to encourage you to become a person of God's Word. To ask God to help you understand what faith is. And I would encourage you to return to that simple and old spiritual discipline of reading your Bible to learn of God. Honestly, you don't need Bible study books. There's going to be difficult passages, but where you need to start is reading this book and not reading books about this book. I read multiple commentaries to prepare for a sermon. I read stuff that surrounds this stuff academic articles that would put you to sleep to try and understand it. But when it really comes down to it, I am failing if I'm not reading God's word and hearing his voice, which I spend a lot of time doing. That's what I encourage you to do. We as the people of Northbrook are going through hard things. And so are people in churches all over Cedar Rapids. It's not unique to us. All I got to do is talk to the other pastors to hear what's going on in other churches and people's lives. We are entering a phase of Christianity, living the life of Christ in our country and in our world that is going to be different from anything you've ever seen. The answer to it is not more programs, The answer to it is not more events. The answer to it is here. It's where we got to start, and it's the kind of people we've got to be. It's who I want you to be. It's who I want myself to be. And it's what I want you to join me in, is being people of the book. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will help us to have a desire to be in your word. It's a hard book because without the Holy Spirit, no one understands it. It's not mystical. It's just spiritual. And the natural man doesn't like it and doesn't understand it and the reality is the natural man still exists in us so father i plead with you for myself and for these people 
your people. That you would help us to learn to love your word. Help us to want to be in your word. Help us to understand your word by the Spirit's power. And God, transform us into the image of Jesus as we hear God's word spoken to us from others and as we read God, as we read your word. Help us to understand how we need to change and help us to become more like your son. In his name, I ask. Amen.